0: This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Capehart. On June 29th, Washington Post Live hosted a series of conversations on health equity, particularly the toll of racial inequality on access to health care. I kick things off with Dr. Rachel Levine, Assistant Secretary for Health for the Department of Health and Human Services. We discussed all the interlocking issues that lead to disparate health outcomes in black and brown communities, from transportation to climate to stigma. Also, Admiral Levine is the highest ranking out transgender government official in U.S. history. So I got her thoughts on the rash of anti-LGBTQ plus bills and laws propping up around the country. And she explains why even though this is the end of Pride Month. This should be a summer of Pride. We should have Pride all summer. Let's begin with um, the recent study Uh, of death certificates from the last two decades which found that uh, the higher mortality rate among african americans resulted in more than 1.6 million premature deaths compared to the white population. How do you explain this? Well, this is a
1: very important study, uh, published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, which highlights the significant health disparities that exist in our nation, which impact life expectancy, uh, um, particularly uh, with African Americans versus, uh, versus other groups. Um, this further confirms the information that we, that we know at the Department of Health and Human Services about um, how significant these health disparities are, and it shows how far we have to
0: go to achieve health equity. Well, I mean, I'm glad you bring that up, because 40 years ago, Margaret Heckler, who was uh, President Reagan's health secretary, wrote a report that outlined the disparate health outcomes on black and minority health. And as you bring up, the the problem has only gotten worse. Um, Is that, is it due to health disparities, or the quality of care, or a combination of the two, or even more factors? I think that there uh, it is those two
1: <clears throat> factors, and there are even more factors. One of the most significant issues is lack of access to care uh, for, for many in the African American community, and that can be in urban areas and in rural areas. Um, it has to do with um, lack of potential lack of health insurance. Uh, but also, I think the social determinants of health, those social factors, that influence health that we don't usually consider health-related, economic opportunity, educational opportunity, nutrition, the environment, transportation, housing, and more. All of those factors together, I think, influence these statistics. Uh, How about stigma? Absolutely. I mean, so structural and systemic racism and stigma have a big influence on this. And these are all issues that we are working to address at the Department of Health and Human Services under Secretary Becerra's leadership. And, of course, throughout the Biden-Harris
0: administration. Um, this is an audience question I was going to bring up later, but it's perfect to, to bring up now. Uh, it's an audience question from Lynn Filiatro, I, I hope, I know I butchered the, uh, Lynn's last name. I'm so sorry, from Washington. You can see it on the screen behind me. Do you agree that health inequity is a systemic issue? If so, what systemic changes do you believe are necessary <clears throat> Excuse me, to remove the health disparity across racial groups, age groups, and social classes? So I do think it is a systemic issue. Certainly the COVID-19
1: pandemic has shown us the depth and breadth of the health disparities in our nation and the lack of health equity. Um, that is why the president um, started the COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force, which was run through my office. And I was... Um, honored to have a seat on, which looked at many of these issues that were being brought forth by the COVID-19 pandemic and all of the different aspects of it. And so really, health equity is fundamental to everything that we're doing now at HHS, under Secretary Javier Becerra's leadership. It is foundational. And so when we look at every grant, we look at every notice of funding, we look at every regulation, we look at every topic that we're, that we're researching and that we're trying to, uh, to, to work on, Health equity is central to it. Uh, we have a Health Disparities Task Force, which I'm very pleased to co-chair, and many different activities, both at my office of the Assistant Secretary for Health,
0: CMS, HRSA, CDC, NIH, and more. And, and I brought up the, I, I used the word stigma because sitting in that seat a few months ago was Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis, who is the Deputy White House Coordinator for the, for the MPOX uh, response. And he talked about many of the things you're mentioning, but also stigma and how that is playing into a lot of the health disparities we see in the country, but also people's access to HIV treatment, to the, to the Mpox vaccine. I'm sure a lot of people in this room understand and know what you're talking about intuitively, but maybe for folks who are watching um, virtually, talk about why all of these things are in, why transportation? and quality of health care, how all those things are intertwined. Sure. Well, stigma is, is critical, and we see
1: that stigma um, uh, in, in terms of the LGBTQI plus community. And in some ways, in many states in this country, that has gotten worse. But in terms of transportation, so I was in East St. Louis last week. Um, I was in St. Louis and then went just across the river to East St. Louis in Illinois and saw significant environmental justice challenges, saw significant significant issues in terms of availability of nutrition. Uh, availability of of fruits and vegetables in that area um, saw challenges in terms of access to health care. One of it is there's very little public transportation and many people don't have cars. So if they're going to go see their doctor uh, or their their nurse practitioner, how are they going to do that? If you open a store in one part of East St. Louis with fresh fruits and vegetables, how do people on the other side get there? And so uh, transportation is absolutely critical for access to health care and access to nutrition,
0: to health, education. All of those factors. So, so then, um, so which community, you talked about going into East East St. Louis, that's but correct. Wh- which communities are most at risk of not receiving quality health care? Is it specifically um, communities of color, or does it cut across? Um, cut across racial lines both so i absolutely communities of color face enormous uh, challenges
1: in terms of health equity and that includes the black african-american community we've been discussing but also the latino community and, and the american indian native alaskan community which also significantly has these challenges but we see cross-cutting issues in, in specific urban areas we have the food deserts in urban areas mm-hmm. where you cannot get you can get food but it's going to be fast food and unhealthy fast food but you can't get fresh produce in many urban areas. Um, we see that in sub- even suburban areas and then certainly in rural areas. Lack of housing, lack of transportation, problems in terms of education. So it is specifically for
0: communities of color, but it is also cross-cutting in terms of other parameters. So then, what are some of the interventions or programs that the government um, has put in place or wants to put in place that would um, reduce racial disparities? And those programs that are in place W- w- which are the successful ones? What are they sure. doing? Well, one of the most
1: successful programs is through HRSA, the Health Resources Service Administration. Those are com- our community health centers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have many, many, th- thousand or more community health centers across the country. Uh, they are located in urban areas. They're located in rural areas. And they're located so people can access them and they often have transportation to them to provide access to that care. Um, uh, in terms of the Affordable Care Act and expansion of Medicaid, Medicaid. That, and through, through the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, that is a critical component to accessing um, health care and having health insurance, except there are still a number of states that haven't expanded e- in Medicaid even all, after all this time. CMS is concentrating on many, many different um, uh, factors in terms of health equity. Uh, Within our Office of Minority Health and Women's Health, in the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Health, we have many different programs focusing on this, including the issue of maternal mortality maternal mortality. Um, uh, women who are um, sick or, or with morbidity or mortality might die um, during, pregn- during pregnancy or during uh, delivery um, or within a year afterwards. The United States is the only developed country that has an increasing rate of maternal mortality, and it is almost exclusively in the black African-American community. These are issues that all of our different um, divisions within HHS are looking at, being studied by CDC and NIH, and then being addressed by HRSA, CMS, and more.
0: Just, what was it, last week or maybe two weeks ago, front page of the Washington Post, story about black maternal health, um, and just the increasing numbers of black women dying uh, in, in, in childbirth or, or after childbirth. I had a, a, a conversation with a member of Congress where i brought this up and, and she said every every three months or so or every quarter there seems to be three stories uh in in the washington post in the new york times all talking about this issue yes each time there's a story the it only highlights how much worse it's gotten since the last story but no conversations about what can be done to make things better. So what can be done to make things better so that the next front page story in the Washington Post about black maternal health will not be it's gotten worse, but? we're starting to see a decline in the, in the rate of Absolutely. death. Absolutely. Well, first we need, to, we need to
1: study it intently, and the CDC ha- has been doing that. Um, so they have been sponsoring maternal health um, morbidity review committees, um, which when I was in Pennsylvania we started one, as well as perinatal collaborators to look at different factors within each state that can address those state-specific issues. But we also need a lot of it is access to prenatal care, um, also with the different social factors that we've been discussing. Um, It's making sure that the the pregnant women have insurance. Uh, And it's making sure that they have proper nutrition. All of those different factors. But we have programs, again, through my office, through HRSA, um, and really um, CMS and more, looking to address that. And I think with this attention uh, in the Biden-Harris administration and this dedication under Secretary Becerra's leadership, we're going to make progress. But it's going to take some time. Mm -hmm.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity, all with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about COVID-19 because that really highlighted, I mean, I'm sure you knew about this, but it really highlighted for the country the health disparities um, that persist in the United States. What lessons did you learn from that experience? I think we, we learned a number of different lessons. One of the lessons is the critical importance
1: of public health. Public health right now is the center of the universe. Um, it, it, and it's so important that we invest in public health, that we invest in the workforce, we inve- invest in the um, information technology and the data uh, for, uh, for, for public health, and I think sustainable funding for public health now and in the future is critically important as we continue to work through uh, um, the COVID 19 and long COVID, uh, as well as prepare for the next pandemic. The second is how critically important it is for local, state, federal, and international public health authorities to work together. And I think that we have made a lot of progress with that in the Biden Harris administration working with state health officials. I was a state health official during the first year of COVID uh, with our local health officials. And we have had many, 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 many uh, discussions, first online and now in person with our colleagues in the states and the local governments to make sure that we're, that we're in sync. Um, and the other is, is those social determinants of health, is that you can't just look at medical care in isolation. Really, we have to look at these other social factors that influence health. So to me, you know, the, the work done in the Department of Commerce is a health issue. The work done by Secretary Pete and the Department of Transportation, that's a health issue. Um, housing at HUD, those are all health issues. And so we have to, to work with those to, to deal with the, the current challenges, such as maternal mortality, such as the continued opioid overdose crisis, um, uh, and so many of
0: the other challenges that we face today. Let me, as you mentioned, you were a state official, but you are formerly a a pediatrician focused on child and adolescent behavioral health. What impact do you think COVID has had when it comes to the mental health of America's children? Well, you know, we see um, many different studies. The newest one
1: is the Youth Risk Behavior Survey out of the CDC that indicate the challenges to mental health among our youth. Um, a lot of that started before the pandemic, but has clearly been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. That's why our Surgeon General, Vice Admiral Vivek Murthy, issued a, a, um, a report uh, and highlighting this in December of 2021. And we have many different programs and all the Different same uh, same departments and divisions we've been discussing, including of course SAMHSA, the Substance Use Mental Health Service Administration, uh, looking at youth mental health and trying to
0: address that. Um, You're the highest-ranking out transgender government official in U.S. history. Um, You and I were both at Vice President Harris's Pride Month reception at the Vice President's residence last night. And and in her remarks, she decried the 500 plus bills that have been introduced in legislatures across the country. More than 70 of them have become law. There have been challenges, to be sure. Just yesterday, federal judges in Kentucky Mm -hmm. and Tennessee they blocked bans on gender-affirming care for for minors in those states. I would love your thoughts on the impact of uh, the impact of these bills and laws popping up across the country. Well, it is very challenging uh, for health equity uh, for the
1: LGBTQI+ community, and, and these politically and ideologically motivated laws and actions are harming. Youth, particularly transgender youth, their families and even their providers who are under siege in many parts of this country, and they 're really interfering with the relationship between um, expert physicians, at, for instance, at children 's hospitals, um, uh, these, these young people, and their families and that 's not where government belongs. Uh,
0: per, per, personally, uh, excuse me, um, as an out transgender. Person, um, I'm not going to say as a government official, though I don't want to get you in trouble. But, just, but, but, but personally, what do you make of the, the tenor and tone of the conversation that we're having in this country when it comes to LGBTQIA plus um, issues? Well, you know, again,
1: the challenge has been these regressive laws and actions that have been uh, promulgated throughout the the country, again, being done specifically for political and ideological purposes. But I see a change. Mm -hmm. I think things are changing. I think that since Transgender Day of Visibility and now the momentum we've developed at Pride, I think that that the conversation is changing. I think the narrative is changing, focusing on these vulnerable youth and their families and their daughters doctors, and I think with Pride Month, just finishing up th- th- this week, uh, that we are going to continue that, to change that narrative and continue to make progress. That's why I've said this should be a summer of Pride. We should have Pride all summer, we, which means that we need to continue these discussions. We need to continue to change the narrative about health equity and about families and about these, these, these young people um, so that we can get past this very
0: challenging stage and continue the progress that we have been making before. And in, in your travels around the country, are you, is that what's driving, what seems to, this optimism from you about a summer of pride, that there that there is pushback around the country to the overall rhetoric and tone and tenor That's of exactly the conversation. Right. That's exactly right. So at the same time, I see these young people and their families,
1: and I meet their doctors who are having such struggles, but I sense a change. I sense a, um, a, a positive change uh, that, will, that I think is going to to continue, um, despite the challenges that we face, and I think that that's going to lead uh, for the tide to turn. And I think that, that that these laws and actions will not stand, and I think that we will continue to make progress. Now, I'm a positive and optimistic person, because I choose to be positive and optimistic. But under the Biden-Harris administration and the, and the leaderships shown uh, at the highest levels of government and across the administration uh, for the LGBTQI plus community um, and the actions in, um, in, in, in states and in communities, changing hearts and minds, uh, I, 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 I remain positive.
0: Hmm. Um, so I noticed you wouldn't get personal in that, in, in that answer. So I'm going to ask you something else. Maybe, maybe you'll, um, you'll go personal uh, uh, on this. I the last, and, and this is a diver, total diversion, but the last show you binged. So I don't get to watch, watch
1: a lot of TV, uh, as you might imagine, um, uh, with a schedule that I keep. But um, between the time that I was nominated and then confirmed and started my position, I actually binge-watched Madam Secretary to get a feel of what Washington was like.
0: Seriously, absolutely. <laughs> Madam Secretary. And so, th- and so then what lessons did you learn? Um, I learned that Washington, Washington can be uh, an interesting place um, <laughs>
1: and with many opportunities and many challenges. I, I learned um, a little bit about how um, about how different uh, departments, of course, that was Department of State and um, Department of HHS, um, uh, interactions with the White House, interactions with the press. Um, and of course, it's a TV show and it's, it's right. you know, made in Hollywood and it, it's uh, it has a certain perspective. I mean, amazing challenges were solved in one or two episodes. It takes a little <laughs> longer to solve these problems. (laughs) But if you look at many of the issues that were discussed in that show, they are ripped from the headlines. Mm -hmm. Environmental challenges. We haven't talked about climate change and health and health equity. Look outside today um, in terms of the air quality that we have in the the, the East Coast and and, and much of the the Midwest. Um, They discussed that. They discussed um, a potential war between Ukraine and Russia in that show. They discussed um, uh, issues of of health, issues um, uh, in terms of uh, economic opportunity. So many different issues that um, the opioid crisis and more that we see right now were shown in that show. So um,
0: even though it's a TV show, it was valuable. Um, What? What did you pick up from Madam, Madam Secretary that got completely obliterated by the reality of the job? Well, that she had like four or five staff that uh,
1: basically, you know, helped run her entire life at the Department of State. I have more staff than the Madam Secretary had. <laughs> um, but, um, but uh, you know, some, some important
0: nuggets, some lessons lessons learned from the show. So. I, I, I find it curious, Madam. you, you binge watch Madam Secretary, which is great, I, I, but not House of... I mean, House of Cards? Um, uh, no, I,
1: I deferred on that. Well, 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 I mean, uh, because I, well, I never watched it, so I can't tell you exactly, but what I heard, it had a much darker tone. <laughs> um, <laughs> subtle, but that's what I've been told. Right. Um, Madam Secretary had a very positive and optimistic tone. I've told you, I'm a positive and optimistic person, and I think that... In this administration, with the leadership that we have, that we're, that we're making changes to benefit health equity and many other challenges that we have in the United States and, and across the world. And so I wanted a positive show, not a show that would be, uh, show me what I was getting into in Washington. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Admiral Rachel Levine, Assistant Secretary for Health at the Department of Health and Human Services. Thank you very much for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Cape Heart. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra Processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity, all with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com slash ITHeroes.